So when I was in middle school, these were not the best years of my life, maturity-wise. My sister just laughed out loud if anybody heard that. That was who that was. Because she might know that this was the season of life where I got into a bit of mischief and did foolish things. One example of which was when one time I was going through a like department store or like a Walmart, I can't remember what it was, I found one of the workers laid to the side uh, the price tag gun and they left and walked away and I thought it would be kind of fun and cute to start changing the prices on a lot of the items all around me so that things would actually be cheaper than what they really are and then walk away. Now, I, I, I do admit, I think this was foolish and immature, and I'm imagining that somebody thought they were getting some amazing deal going to the cashier and maybe being like, well, we got to honor the price, or who knows what that conversation was when they were ringing up the $100 pair of shoes for $10. But then I've wondered since then, you know, what if I was right? What if those fancy tennis shoes really only are worth $10? And those price tags should have been adjusted. I don't know a lot about this topic, but I have heard that many clothes that we wear today are made very unethically, that the quality of them and where they've come from and how they were manufactured, that they're way overpriced from what they're actually worth in regards to the materials and the labor that was put into them. And so all of this brings me to the one big question I have for us today. Who is in charge of assigning worth and value? Who is the one who gets to determine what something is worth in this world? And right from the start, I just want to give you what I think the answer is biblically. The answer is God but that he has encharged and entrusted with us as humans on the earth to view things the way that he does and assign them the value that he has assigned. Jonathan Lehman has written in one of his books on the church an illustration, and he says, think of it like this. God has hired an entire group of store managers called humans that they're supposed to take care of his store called the earth. And pretty much as soon as we entered into that store, we took that price sticker gun, and like me, the foolish middle school kid, we started changing all of the prices of the price tags. And now, there are millions upon billions of items that are all around this earth that are completely out of sync with the value and the price that God originally designed them to have. The cheap is now costly, and the costly is now cheap. I'm convinced one of the main goals of the Bible and Christianity is to return price tags to their original God-given value. Even when those efforts are often met with hostility by Many other store managers who have been so accustomed to the false price tags and get upset when you want to reorient their worldview.
When you and I become Christians, we are turning to God. We are turning away from our own self-understanding and our own wisdom, and we're turning to his word so that we can know what is truly valuable. It's as if the more that we saturate ourselves in Christian community and reading and listening to God's word, the more that the price tags of God's creation will be restored to the way he designed them to be in our minds, in our hearts. Don't you see? Isn't this true? Before you were a Christian, you'd spend your entire lives trying to buy the things of this world. But now the Bible has informed you, what does it profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? Before you were a Christian, you and I, we would spend our days running around asking, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What should we wear? But now we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Obviously not perfectly. But first and foremost, we seek him. Before we were Christians, we sought the praise and the prestige of men. And now, born again, spirit-filled Christians, they seek the reward that comes from the Father in heaven. Before, we would seek worldly wealth. Now, we prize the poverty and humility of our spirit. Before, it was laughter. And now, it's blessed to be in the house of the morning. Before it was bravado, and now it is the meek who will inherit the earth. With all of this in mind, I want you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 26. And my hope is that as we read this section of scripture, this will be another encounter of readjustment of our values. I want this section of scripture to transform the way that you view God, Jesus the world, your neighbor. So we're going to continue our two-plus-year-long sermon series that we started in Christmas in 2018 with now picking up Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way to verse 16. Follow along. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and she poured it on his head and he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve 
whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. One big question, one big idea for us to consider after reading this passage of scripture, it's the one big question that I could not go away from every time I came back to this sermon preparation. This was the question. How much is Jesus worth to you? What is his price tag? I think this becomes all the more clear when you look at the passage yet again and you look down and you notice that the story in the middle, that's verses 6 to 13, is on either side of stories about people that are doing things to try and kill Jesus. And this is a way of communicating and writing that is sandwiching the center story in a way that I think highlights more so the value and the worth of Jesus and what this woman does as she anoints him with this expensive ointment. So you should see in verses 1 through 5, as a just brief overview, that Jesus has just finished saying a long speech. And that's what you look back in verse uh, chapter 25 at the end and then see all of what Jesus just did. He just finished saying all of these sayings. And that's the fifth and the final time that Matthew uses that little designation to say, Jesus just finished a long speech. And it's a quote even from the book of Deuteronomy when Moses was done giving a speech. So those are all these fun little details. But the point is, is that you've got Jesus finished this long Olivet Discourse. He, He turns to his disciples. He says that after two days, the Passover is coming. And then he says what? The Son of Man. The Daniel 7 conquering one who ascends up into the heavens and sits down at the right hand of Father. That, that one, the Son of Man, me, I will be delivered and crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders and the people gather in the palace of the high priest whose name is Caiaphas and they plot together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth or more literally by deceit to kill him because they didn't want to do it during the feast of the Passover lest there be an uproar. If you drop down to the the bottom, then you notice that one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest followers, spent a few years with him. His name, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And then he saw an opportunity to betray him. Do you see the sandwich? There's betrayal and arrest and threats and ominous, dark, feelings in the text both at the beginning and the end but in the middle is this woman in the house of a former leprous man presumably he was formerly a leper not Simon the present leper otherwise they wouldn't have been getting together it's kind of like oh you've got COVID let's hang out at your house this week no no he formerly had COVID we'll hang out at his house now because now he can't get it you know that kind of thinking they're at Simon the leper's house And when we compare and contrast what this woman does with what happens on either side, I think you start to realize that Matthew has arranged this section of scripture in such a way to highlight the value and the worth of Jesus. So let's look at those comparisons and contrasts. On the one hand, you see people trying to have Jesus killed, threatening to arrest him, seeking an opportunity 
wanting to betray him. On the other hand, you see a woman preparing Jesus for his burial. It says that the high priest is two days away from Passover. The high priest. This is like the Pope on Christmas Eve planning to like blow up a children's hospital. Would anybody, if that news leaked, be like appalled? Here is a prominent religious figure that everybody in the society knows and on the second highest holiday of that religious community. They're plotting to kill one of the prominent teachers in the community. That's dark. Like that, that has a, a sense of darkness that you maybe miss if you don't pair the ideas together. High priest, Passover's two days away. And the way they count days is actually that right now would be a day, and then when the sun goes down, this evening would be the second day. So we're just really like within 24 hours or more from Jesus being handed over and betrayed. You know, I think it's just important for us to observe that not all people who are religious leaders are good. Isn't it obvious here that between these characters, the high priest, one of Jesus' disciples, the unnamed woman is the one that seems to get it right. I know that seems to be the case so often. More on that in a second. But for now, let's just observe the contrast between a high priest, a disciple of Jesus, and a woman doing a generous act of preparing Jesus for his burial. Now, did she know that he was going to be buried? Well, he did announce several times, as we just saw in verse 1 and verse 2, that he knew he was going to die, and he told people, and maybe she knew. And if we take John's gospel, that this is actually the woman named Mary of Magdalene from John chapter 12, then it's, it's very plausible that she actually did hear Jesus' predictions that he was going to die, and so therefore, in reverence and in awe, this was an intentional act of preparing him for his death. Or it just was simply a prophetic act. She was doing something out of the goodness of her heart that was way beyond what she even knew she was doing. But notice the contrast between those who would have him killed versus those who would honor his death and prepare him for his burial. Second comparison. I'm just listing these out. They're not necessarily notes per se, but just some observations of contrast. Here's a second one. The disciples are condemning the woman, and Jesus is commending the woman. Notice the way that Jesus says, why are you bothering that woman? He's aware of the situation, and so there's, there's reading between the lines where it's like, either by their body language, or their posture, or by the things they're saying behind her back, or even directly to her face, like, what in the world are you doing? How, how could you have done that with that expensive ointment? What a waste, they say. And Jesus rebukes them. He condemns them and tells them, no, 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 you've got this all backwards. And he commends her. I mean, what a, what a lesson here. How many of you think that you rightly have assessed everything in the world and that you are always right? I mean, why would you presume that? As Christians, we kind of take this default view that our hearts and our minds need 
fixed. They're broken. And so if you're not a Christian, welcome. This is a Christian gathering where we're a bunch of people that think we have a broken assessment regulator in our mind and heart, and we need it reprogrammed by God and his word and his spirit. And so therefore, I don't think we should always assume, even if you've spent three years with Jesus face-to-face, being trained by the master himself, that you're always evaluating things correctly. Very practically, I think that if this is you and me and the spirit that we take, it should humble us. It should humble us to help us realize that there are many times where we're going to quickly make judgments on what other members of our church or community do with their purchases and their spending, and we maybe shouldn't be too quick to judge. There might be times where what you condemn is what Jesus would commend. Some persons in this congregation might decide that they're going to sell their big house and live in a simplified house for the sake of the kingdom. And others of you might sell the small house and buy the bigger house so that you can host tons and tons of people in your home. Are you searching for the commendation of men or from Jesus? And are you justifying your purchases by a certain way that, you know, God would like this or this is for ministry, but really your heart is for yourself? These are the things that can really only be worked out in real, honest community. Transparent conversations, discipleship relationships, and that's why that's such a central part of how we understand doing church life together. Friends, if if you have questions about this, I probably can't answer them because for each one of you, you're in different economic situations, you're in different salaries and all kinds of things, but this church is a mixed community of people where we can learn and listen from one another about how we should spend our money, how we should value the things of this world, and let's not always assume that we're valuing things correctly. Let's invite into our lives the correction like Jesus gives here of actually, she got it right, and you got it wrong. A third contrast. What they think is wasteful, she thinks is worshipful. What they think is wasteful, she thinks is an act of worship. I want us to remember again that this is the disciples that are saying these things. This isn't like these you know, non-Christian, very secular, humanist, atheist kind of people that have all of their attention being, well, the joy in this world can be found by getting lots of stuff and that they love money more. I mean, these are the people that have already left behind their family and friends to some degree to follow Jesus into Jerusalem. He called them from Galilee. They're in Jerusalem now. They have been on a long road trip with Jesus, sacrificing all kinds of things, as we might presume. And sure enough, many of them will in the future sacrifice their lives. So that is the people that still have this skewed vision about this ointment. Whereas this woman, this woman sees Jesus as supremely valuable. Have you ever noticed that there just seems to be a pattern throughout Matthew's gospel and really the whole Bible where the person that you're least expecting is the hero of the story. This is one of the reasons why if you're skeptical of the Bible or your friends might be, you might want to point out to them that the heroes of the Bible are not even the people that wrote it. 
Matthew is one of these disciples. If I'm Matthew, I'm thinking, hey, we might want to leave this part out. This is one of those stories that we might want to airbrush, little Photoshop. I don't think that this one needs to make the cut because we look really bad. But here it is. Matthew, one of the disciples of Jesus. He seems to have no problem with realizing that, yeah, remember when we got all upset and frustrated and angry with that woman? Jesus was right. And this woman is not even named by Matthew. And like I said, John might have the name right, and it could be, in fact, Mary, and there's a lot of reason, I think, to believe that. But in Matthew's gospel, he leaves her unnamed, as if it just doesn't even matter. Because that thing was just so common in Jesus' life, interacting with people that the rest of the world wouldn't even remember who they are. Are you starting to get a picture of that the way the kingdom ethics and values of Jesus just they don't really align with our celebrity-driven American culture. Completely upside down, flipped and turned on its head. Perhaps it's because we in America, we value people who are young and strong. And the Bible values the vulnerable, the unborn, and the elderly, and the weak. We value rich, successful, wealthy, And the Bible values those who are poor and repeatedly, and I mean repeatedly, says God has a special eye to those who are hurting and suffering. We in America and in the world, we value those who are beautiful. You know, they look all put together, self-image, nice eight-pack abs, the Hemsworth routine is working, all of that stuff. That's what we value, but God He looks upon those who are lowly and despised by this world, whom we might call ugly. We value those who have it all together, and the Bible values those that just can't seem to get their act together. Another comparison. Judas wants to betray. The woman wants to do something beautiful, Jesus says. Betrayal versus beauty. 30 pieces of silver is all it took. 30 pieces of silver. Now that may seem like a lot of money. It was the price of a slave that was gored, and if you had to repay for a slave getting gored and maimed, this is a strange little Deuteronomy kind of tidbit, but there's an actual Old Testament like, oh well here's a scenario. And so I don't know if there's a connection to that or if it's just a coincidence. Either way, 30 pieces of silver compared to the ointment. The ointment, we know from, again, reading just the broader gospel stories, was most likely Eastern, Indian. It was made of pure nard, one gospel writer says. So from the pure nard, we can pick up and realize, oh, this was like imported from out of the area. And then we were also told this tidbit detail, 300 days worth of work is how much it cost to fill that alabaster jar of perfume. 300 days of work. So, let's just do a quick calculation. $15 an hour, right? Like kind of minimum wage. Eight hours times 300. $36,000 would maybe be an equivalent in today's language. Any of you thinking if there was a bottle of perfume worth $36,000, like, 
dang, that's a lot of money. There's a lot you could do with that. And that's exactly what these disciples are thinking. Wow, that's like an entire year's worth of salary. I could buy a car with that. Perfume, car, huh? You know, I'm selling that perfume and buying a car and then giving it to the poor. At least that's the spirit of the text, isn't it? They're trying to think of all the things that she could have done with that money and with that valuable item. And instead, she uses it all for Jesus. All of it. And Jesus says this. This is the last contrast I want you to point, because this one, I think, is the most profound and in some ways the most disturbing. Jesus says, you will always have the poor among you, which seems to be a reference to, if not a direct quote from the passage that Etienne read for us earlier in Deuteronomy 15, you'll always have the poor among you. So therefore, Deuteronomy says, take care of them. Jesus says, you'll always have the poor, just like Deuteronomy says, you'll you'll not always have me. God's word clearly values the poor in Deuteronomy, and Jesus is affirming that, I think, by even referencing that. If you turn your eyes over or your Bibles back one one page, Matthew 25, wherever that is in your Bibles, what's the very last thing that Jesus is talking about right before this scene? Well, it's that story about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Do you remember that story? It was a few weeks ago when we covered it in our worship services, but it's a familiar one, right? Jesus says that there's going to be a day of judgment and a day of separation, and on his right and on his left, some sheep and some goats. And he says that those who fed the poor, those who took care of the prisoners, those who welcomed in the stranger and the visitor, etc., etc., They were doing that for me. So in many ways, aren't you trying to think like, the disciples got it. Jesus just taught on how when you care for the poor and the stranger and the alien and the the outcast kind of person, when that's your mindset, then you're doing that for him, like you're honoring him because he so identifies with those kind of people. And so when they respond this way, it's a bit disturbing or shocking like what's what's his deal isn't this exactly what he just taught immediate application oh here's this valuable expense let's use this to serve the poor because when we do that that's exactly what Jesus would want and I think that in many ways Jesus does want them to serve the poor which is why he quotes this text so let's first just take that point embassy church I think it's really clear from Matthew 25 and here in our text in Matthew 26, the Bible and Jesus affirm caring for the poor. And this Christmas, I think we should be thinking about to what degree our value system is kind of messed up from all of those switched price tags. How much of us, if we're really honest, I said this to my wife the other day, I was kind of joking and then I was like, no, I think that might actually just be true. Sometimes, even in Christian circles, we talk like, well, Christmas is about Jesus. Let's keep the Christ in Christmas. But for many of us, it's really about presence. And that's because we have been surrounded by, 
you know, just indoctrinated with materialism. And it's hard to reshift the value system of what really gets you excited on Christmas Day. Is it, is it really Jesus or is it, is it presents? And I, I don't know if I'm, you know, trying to throw a bucket of water on your Christmas celebrations. I'm just trying to be honest. To what degree are we being affected by that sort of thing? So here's just one example for our family. I don't think we're doing this great, and I would love more input, but every single year my wife and I talk about how to more minimalize and simplify Christmas present time. So that way, hopefully, our children will not pass on this perpetual re- you know, this valuing of of gift giving over Jesus himself, the true gift. I I commend this idea. Just start thinking about it. What would Christmas look like if presents and gifts were more minimal and simplified? And what if that just slowly happened? Or what are just different practices you could do? If you didn't purchase that gift, you then use that money to give it to one of the families in need at Rand Grove as we have been encouraging people to do this Christmas season. I'm hoping and praying that we did this last year, a similar sort of effort. We are doing it this year. My hope is that next year you can start making plans now. The next Christmas, we're going to set aside some of the funds we would have used for overindulging in Christmas presents to help those that maybe don't have any money to buy just groceries. And we'll get them groceries and presents. And so that's what we've been doing at Rand Grove, and I wanted to share just a brief little word of encouragement so that many of you, because of the COVID pandemic and the inability for us to do our regular breakfast hour, we've not heard the cool and exciting updates of what's going on, and I got one of these this week, and I thought it was fitting for me to share today. This is from a a member of the community that our church has been serving in the Rand Grove Village Complex. And they're a a professing believer, and they received one of these gifts, and this is what they said. You absolutely would not believe how the Lord has multiplied this joy drop blessing tonight. First, my son, who is at such a pivotal age of learning that we need to trust in God to provide all of our needs. He came running into our apartment, dragging an enormous box of food and yelling with joy, Dad, it's Christmas! I cried with joy. God, our Father, abundantly provides. Through the money and the food, and of course, all the extra candy you gave to my son, We got a pepper grinder, and then this was just cool. We were able to share the food with two other households who were in need. I have an Egyptian immigrant friend who's a single mom, and then her two kids got to see that the Jesus that provided for us is also providing for them. Then there's a grieving widow friend living down the hall. She's all alone and she cries often. She came over and she got three huge bags of food from us. I'm telling you, it was just like Jesus when he multiplied the loaves and fishes. Not only were our needs supplied, but we had so much left over that we shared it with others. You know what else? My son was filled with joy that God cared for them 
And he was able to minister to some other young neighbors. The kids' parents and grandparents down the hall got COVID. And tonight we learned that one of them is close to dying. My son went into the room. He came out with two stuffed animals, brought them to those little boys. Jesus is ministering all over the first floor of our building. Thank you for the joy drops. Oh, first time I read that, I didn't cry as much. But when you're preaching the Bible like this and seeing Jesus in action, wow. So, Embassy Church, I hope that that stirs your heart with joy to know that God is at work in our community and in this fallen and broken world, there will always be poor among us and so let's continually, faithfully serve them. There will always be opportunities for us to show to the world, no, we have a different price tag on the people that you count as valuable. But isn't it interesting That even with all of the emphasis and focus in Matthew 25 and even the reference to the poor always being among them, Jesus at the end of the day does not agree with the disciples' logic. He does not think that they should have sold the perfume and given it to the poor. I mean, $36,000 would have gone a long way at Rand Grove, wouldn't you think? And this is why I said disturbing. Potentially. Jesus thinks that he is especially deserving of that $36,000 perfume. Jesus thinks he's worth it. Like, just let that sink in. I mean, that's all I've been trying to do this week. Let that sink in. Jesus' self-understanding, according to the way he responds, is, guys, that was not a waste. I'm worth it. Like, who talks like this? We would think you've got to be the most selfish, egomaniac kind of person to think and talk that way. And if you're not new to Christianity, this is why I'm using the word disturbing. What in the world? Who talks like this? I thought Jesus was a nice guy. He seems like a maniac. He seriously has a high view of himself. But maybe that's the point. Maybe he should. The question is, do you? Do you have that high a view of Jesus? What kind of price tag do you put on Jesus? In the eyes of the world, Jesus is the cheapest and poorest human that has ever walked this earth. To spend all of that anointment on Jesus is to spend all of that valuable possessions on not just a poor man, the poorest of poor men. Jesus is the man who had everything and lost everything. He lost his home in heaven. He came to the earth and had no place to lay his head. He lost his family and was separated from the intimate relations of the Father and the Spirit. He lost his friends And as we see in our text, was betrayed and abandoned by even his closest followers. He lost his reputation, his dignity, when he was stripped naked and publicly beaten and executed to hang on a cross. As Isaiah says, he lost his beauty and his majesty. 
He had no body image that anyone would ever be attracted to look upon him. He lost his life. Jesus Christ gave up everything. Poorest of the poor. Why? Was that a waste? When the Father and the Son spilled the blood of Jesus, this expensive ointment, this expensive cost, the Son of God? Jesus, he was great. He healed people. He was talented. He was young. He, he was happening. Things were going good in his life. Wouldn't he be more valuable to us if he was alive instead of dead? Maybe this whole idea about Christmas, sending your son into the world and having him treated with such disrespect and of little value, coming to his own and his own and knowing him not. Maybe that wasn't a good idea. It was the best idea. Jesus gave up everything in heaven so that you and I could be with him. He left everything in heaven so he could be with us on earth. And he gave up everything on earth, even his life, so that all of us could be reunited with him in heaven. In one sense, you could say that what makes Jesus so valuable is by realizing the thing that he values. The more that you see the heart and the life of Jesus, the more I think that you will consider the worth of Jesus. Jesus values the whole world, the earth, and all that has been made. He values humanity, you and me. But it's not just like Mr. Rogers, you're special. Jesus came only for you. He did. Take comfort and, and, and heart to know he did come for you. He left heaven so that he could be here on earth. Christmas, joy to the world, the Lord has come. But he values us because he supremely values the glory of his Father. He values righteousness. He values the complete restoration of his Father's broken plan of humanity, the, the, the brokenness of the world that is. He, he values restoring the price tags to the way that the Father originally designed them to be when he created the world. And I believe that the degree to which you understand what Jesus values, the very heart of Christ will be to the degree that you will value him. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, for that we Know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He was rich, but he became poor, so that you would become rich. When you have a relationship with Jesus, it should help you realize the infinite value of what you have right in front of you. 
So that as the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Or as Isaac Watts says at the final verse of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. The whole world could be yours. That's not good enough. That's, that's too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. How much is Jesus worth to you? I pray that this week, that question will be ringing in our hearts and our ears as we continue to do life together as a church. Let's pray that now. Our Father in heaven, we come in the name of your son Jesus, and we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, declare and announce that he is alone worthy. Is anyone worthy? We're so thankful that Christ is. We're so thankful that he has entered into our broken humanity and that this Christmas season we can celebrate that he came. He came to rescue. He came to fulfill the Father's plan and will that the sovereign God had ordained and determined that Jesus Christ would be the worthy one and that he would take our place and die on a cross for sinners like us who are unworthy. That he who knew no sin became sin. That he who was rich became poor so that we might become rich. Father, this gospel of good news is amazing. Love so amazing, so divine. It demands everything from us and it should. We want to pray that your spirit will enable us as a church to be able to reorient the value system of what is truly valuable in this world. And I pray for families as they have those conversations about Christmas. I pray for the Rand Grove community that even as we give them presents, it will not be the presents themselves, not the gifts, but the giver that they find great glory in. We pray that there would be conversions to faith in part because of the efforts that we're doing in the community. We pray, God, for all of this and so, so much more, more than we could ever ask or imagine, be glorified in our church and in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.